0: Church, what a joy it is to be worshiping uh, together again. So thankful for all of you. Special welcome to those of you watching online. I pray you wouldn't be watching online for too long, but you would be here very soon. We would love to... To see you and to fellowship with you, to pray with you, and most of all to worship our gracious God with you. Look forward to seeing you soon, loved ones. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 9 tonight. Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 to 19. Acts 9, 1 to 19. If you do not have a copy of God's word, then please put your hand up. Our ushers are coming right now, and they want to put a copy of God's word in your lap. Acts 9, 1 and 19. And on those Bibles that are being handed out, turn to page 535, 535, and you will find our text for tonight. Well, here we are heading into our next message in the series through verse by verse, line by line, through the book of Acts. The series through Acts, chapters 8 to 12, part 2 in our three-year series, entitled Strong and Courageous in Witness. And the title of tonight's message is I Am Jesus. I Am Jesus. Okay, question Question, hope, love you, eyes up, question, what's impossible for Jesus? Say it. Nothing. Oh, wait, hold on. What's impossible for Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. If you don't believe us, just look at Luke one37 you'll see that. Nothing is impossible with God. All right, now let's drill down. Think about that. When it comes to our witness... That is, when it comes to testifying to the person and work of Jesus Christ so that others may live, the question that must drive our confidence is this. Not what's impossible for Jesus, but who's impossible for Jesus. Okay, we're going to play this again. See if we catch on. Who's impossible for Jesus? No, oh, okay, all right, let's get the sleep out of our eyes. Here we go. Who's impossible for Jesus? No. no one's impossible for Jesus to not save, to not transform that life, to not redeem that life, to not forgive that life. The answer is no one. That's good theology right there. Amen? That's good theology. And when it comes to your witness, here's the penetrating question. Ready? Has your heart caught up with your theology? Has your heart caught up with your theology? We can say nothing. Nothing's impossible. No one is impossible for Jesus. Does your witness show that? Why do we back down in fear? Why do we say, well, well, it won't be that person? I've witnessed to that person again and again. I just, they're not. Really? Really? That person seems too hard. That person seems too angry, hostile against the church. What? Has your heart caught up with your theology? I think you see the problem we face every every day. See if we catch on to this one. The problem is you say it louder unbelief, unbelief is a beast in our lives. Unbelief. We look around today, we see the people that God's put around us, hardened, angry, deceived, hostile, indifferent, maybe unresponsive to pastimes. You've tried to share the gospel with them. And here's what happens very quickly in our unbelief. We doubt the lordship and grace of Jesus to save and transform the life. As shown by... As we said, fear, anxiety. Here's another one. Man-centered strategies to witness. We start to think, well, I just have to, it's up to me, I have to have the right words. I just have to, if I could just say it the right way, maybe I could convince them. And we stray from the simple gospel message, Christ crucified. And it ends up in missed opportunities and ultimately a silenced witness. A silenced witness. All right. All right. I want to challenge us tonight. Everyone around this place, online, online, yes, on your couches, I want you to lean in. Lean in tonight. Get your pens ready. Get your Bibles open. Lean in because right here in this text, Jesus is stirring us up by way of remembrance. And he says this. He says this. You ready to lean in? Ready to lean in tonight? He says, fearful, anxious, anxious, Struggling and doubting one.
1: I am Jesus. Trust me. I
0: am Jesus. Trust me. My grace is sufficient for your witness. My grace is sufficient for your witness. Here's the big idea. Write this down. Lean in tonight, Hope. Here it is. No one can outrun the grace of Jesus. You believe that? No one can outrun the grace of Jesus. What does that mean for us? So trust him in your witness. So trust him in your witness. Here's the context. A.D. 33. Maybe 34. Right around there. First century We just came out of Acts 8. Remember Acts 8? The floodgates of persecution have opened against the church in Jerusalem, and the church is scattered to Judea and Samaria. And you see the picture of it right here. It starts in Jerusalem, and then it's, look, the church is exploding. No matter the persecution that tries to come against it, it can't stop it. Everyone say, it can't stop it. It can't stop it. Here it goes. The church is scattered and there's a spiritual awakening in Samaria and all the way up the coast there from Gaza all the way up to Caesarea as we saw last week. There's a spiritual awakening taking place. And this persecution against the church is led by a man named Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is his hometown. It's in modern day Turkey. Led by Saul of Tarsus. Now, now Saul is the focus of chapter 9. Actually, Jesus, through his work through Saul, is the focus of chapter 9. So we're going to just dive in here. And he's a major player in the rest of the book of Acts. And, well, let's be two-thirds of the New Testament. So we have to get our background on who Saul is. Write this down, okay? He's named after King Saul... And he was a Jewish and Roman citizen. His dad was Roman, and so he's got dual citizenship. And that's going to come into play later on throughout the book. Now Saul was one of the highest and most decorated Pharisees. These were the keepers of the law, the Pharisees in Israel, they were, he, was the, he went to the most prestigious rabbinical school. He was the prize student of the most prestigious Rabbi Gamaliel. He was the prize student. In fact, Saul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 1, he goes, I was advanced ahead of all my peers. Saul was leaving everybody in the dust in terms of his loyalty to rabbinical law which he claimed and the rabbis claimed was Old Testament law, but really they had twisted it and turned it into legalism by adding a whole bunch of man-made rules so they could control the people of Israel. Legalism. But oh, Saul was ahead of them all. He was zealous for God. He was zealous to uphold the law And what that meant is he was out to single handedly destroy any and all opposition to the law. He's out to destroy it. As such, the message of grace comes, the gospel comes, and what does Saul become? He becomes the greatest hater and persecutor of the church. The greatest hater. And persecutor of the church. Saul had the hardest heart. It wasn't like Saul had heard hadn't heard the gospel before. Saul had heard the gospel. Remember, if you go back to chapter seven, here's Stephen preaching the gospel, and Saul's holding the coat check while people are stoning him. He's heard the gospel many times already. And he seems so unresponsive, the hardest heart. In fact, when he goes on to tell more of his testimony in Acts 26, verse 11, he says he was a raging fury against the church. To say you were a Christian against Saul is a marker for death. He was a raging fury against the church, and the church, he was obsessed in destroying it. He was obsessed. So if we could sum up Saul of Tarsus, Saul is the least likely candidate for conversion. Can we all agree on that? I mean, you think you got people around you that are like, you know, a little bit maybe a little soft to the gospel? Maybe Saul of Tarsus. How do they measure up there with him? He was the least likely candidate. Who is that for you? When you think of that person in your workplace or your neighborhood or on your sports team or in your school class, who seems to be the hardest heart for the gospel? Who's that around you? Just write that name down and then take it to the Lord again and again and again this week. And watch what he does.
1: Just watch what he does.
0: And today, here in Acts 9, we bear witness to one of the most incredible and greatest conversion stories in all of history. Every conversion to Jesus Christ is a miracle. But this one holds special significance, and for a number of reasons. In fact, Luke wants us to get this so much, he mentions it three times in the book of Acts. Here in Acts 9, and then again in Acts 22, and then again in Acts 26. Each one fills in the details a little more. And from this, we see two essential truths of Jesus... Two essential truths of Jesus, we must believe if we are to trust him in our witness, knowing that no one can outrun his grace. Ready to go? Let's dive in. Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter nine. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. We will read Acts chapter nine, and we're gonna go verses one to nine page 535 in those blue Bibles we handed out. The conversion of Saul. Let's read together nice and loud, loved ones. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground he heard a voice saying to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me and he said who are you Lord and he said I am Jesus who you are persecuting but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Awesome, by the way. Can we just say awesome? Hear the word of the Lord, all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go. Let's go. First thing we see right here, we must trust Jesus in our witness. First thing right here, for his unstoppable pursuit. We must trust Jesus in our witness for his unstoppable pursuit. Here's the truth, loved ones. Take this to the bank. No heart is too far gone for God's grace. No heart is too far gone for God's grace. But here's the question facing us. Will you trust in the pursuit of Jesus? Will you trust in the pursuit of Jesus? You saw in verses one to two, as the church continues to grow, so does Saul's hatred for it. The church grows exponentially. Saul's hatred and obsession and rage against the church grows exponentially. He says, notice the text. It says, Saul is still breathing threats. Everyone take a deep breath in and out. Here's Saul's breath. Hatred. Murder. Ravage. Havoc. He hates it. He's breathing out threats. He's obsessed and murder. So much so, did you see the text? Saul just doesn't want to destroy the church in Jerusalem. That's not enough for him. He's been doing his best to do that, but he wants to go way beyond Jerusalem too. So he goes to the high priest, notice the text, in Jerusalem, and he gets him to write letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Now these so-called letters, these are basically arrest warrants that the high priest is going to give Saul permission, notice the text, what's he doing, to bind up and arrest Christians. Those, notice the text, belonging to the way, verse 2. Belonging to the way. Now notice the way has a capital W. W, Do you know why? Because it's a name. There's one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Who said that? Jesus Belonging to the way of Christ, belonging to the way of salvation, the gospel, the Christian life. And Saul has permission now to bring them back to Jerusalem for jail time and ultimately for their murder. And so let's get an idea of our context. Let's put up that picture of Damascus. So here he is in Jerusalem and he's going all the way up to Damascus on the top right of your screen. That's in Syria. It is the Syrian capital. It is still today. And notice the text in verse 2. It had a large population of Jews. There were synagogues there. And many Christians also had fled there from the per- persecution in Jerusalem. All right. Do you know how long that distance is? That is 160 miles. It's a six-day journey from Jerusalem Jerusalem to Damascus, 160 miles. Okay, just stop for a sec. Eyes up. How much hatred does Saul have for the church? When's the last time you just decided I'm going to take a 160-mile walk? Because your obsession with destroying Christians was driving you. How much does Saul hate the church? And notice verses three to nine on the road to Damascus, Saul encounters someone he didn't expect. He encounters Jesus. We need to be clear on something. You'll see it on the screen, write this down. Saul was pursuing Christians, but Jesus was pursuing Saul. Saul didn't see the one who was pursuing him, who was coming for him. Saul thought he had the edge. Uh Uh-uh. Jesus is pursuing Saul while Saul is pursuing Christians. And this pursuit, let's just call it what it is. It's a mismatch. Saul's got no chance against Jesus. Saul and no one else could see that coming. But now he finds out. Go back to verse 3. Let's read together verse 3. Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly, look at the text, look at the text, suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. He is surrounded. The light of heaven flashed around him. It is the vision of God's glory, specifically the vision of Jesus in his resurrected glory. And in fact, Acts 26, 13 Saul goes on to tell us that it was noon when this happened. Where's the sun in the sky when it's noon? Is it the highest place and the brightest place? And he goes on to say it was brighter than the sun. Just oh, just stop for a second. The glory of Jesus, brighter than the sun. The sun that we can't even look at for more than a few seconds without damaging our eyes. The glory of Jesus, brighter than the sun. How awesome is our Savior. And then keep reading verses four and five. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, that is Saul, says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, Saul sees the vision of the resurrected Jesus. Notice what happened in the text. Look at the text. He gets knocked over. Mr. Powerful gets knocked over. And he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, again, let's go back. Let's get a biblical definition of persecution. It means to harass or destroy or or trying to destroy or ravaging. He says, why are you harassing? Why are you trying to destroy me? And I want you to notice this. Notice he didn't say. Notice what Jesus didn't say. Why are you persecuting those that follow me? Why did Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? You see the beautiful unity between Christ and his people. The beautiful unity of Christ and the church is so strong. He is the head of the church. We are literally his body, spiritual body. And that to come against, be on notice, be on notice, to come against the church, to come against a Christian, is to come against Jesus himself. To come against the church, to come against A follower of Jesus Christ is to come against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so look how Saul responds. He says, who are you, Lord? That term Lord there means master. It's a term of reverence. Saul knows something's going on. Now think how floored and stunned must Saul have been hearing these next words. Go to the text. Look at it right there. Verse 5. I am Jesus, Saul who you are persecuting. And then notice verses six to nine, Jesus blinds Saul and commands him to get up, go to Damascus, and he'll tell him later what to do next. And so the men traveling with Saul, these are Saul's thugs, tough guys. They hear the voice, but as we can see from Acts 22.9, that fills in a bit of the detail for us, they don't understand the voice. They hear it, but don't understand. They don't see Jesus. And so now all they know is they're now needing to take the most feared persecutor of the church and lead him by hand into Damascus, to the house of Judas, where for three days he couldn't see, notice the text, and he fasted and prayed. No doubt these three days or a God-given time of reflection as his entire life and purpose was just turned upside down. Take some reflection time, Saul. So live in the text. Don't miss this. In a moment. In a moment. The most unstoppable, feared Pharisee, most feared persecutor of the church, the top of the class, all the knowledge, all the skills, who thought, as one commentator said, he would be entering Damascus in arrogance, hatred, and opposition to Jesus, was led into it instead humbled, blind, and captive to the very Christ he opposed.
1: I am Jesus.
0: He encounters Jesus, and Saul hits the deck. He is no match for as I love how John Stott put this. He's commentator. He says he's no match for the hound of heaven. Oh, yeah, Jesus, the hound of heaven, pursuing Saul, and Saul's no match. And today, Jesus Christ, by his grace, is still pursuing, and he can't be stopped. Amen? The heart may be hard. The pride may be great. The hatred may run deep. Indifference may seem too much. Rejection may have been constant. But loved ones, you be encouraged from these first nine verses. That person, that heart is no match for the hound of heaven. see it on the screen. This is so beautiful. One commentator Tony Marita, said it this way. The good news of the gospel is that God pursues sinners. Oh, The good news of the gospel is that God pursues sinners. He cannot be stopped. What grace. What grace. No heart is too far gone for God's grace, but here loved ones. Heart check time. Will you trust in the pursuit of Jesus? Who is that person that you're tempted to think is too far gone? Who are they? Did you write them down earlier? Write them down now if you didn't. Who is that person you think is too far gone? Maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And maybe you think you're too far gone. Maybe you think I've done so much in my past. I could never be forgiven. That could never be redeemed. Or maybe like Saul... You think you're good with God. Did you know Saul thought he was good with God? Maybe you think you're good with God. You've heard the message of the gospel many times, yet you reject it. Because you think, I'm good. I've done my good works. Saul was great at good works. He was actually top of his class, better than you or I. I've done my good works. I have favor with God. They'll save me. No problem. Here's the answer. No, they won't. No, they won't. Did you notice this? How do you know this? Just look at the text. What did Saul do to initiate Jesus going after him? Nothing. Saul's salvation is initiated by Jesus from day one. If anything if it's based on Saul's merit, Jesus isn't going after him because Saul didn't deserve it and neither do you or I. Saul did nothing to initiate. Only Jesus did. Salvation is only by, notice the text, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And if you're here and you've never accepted Christ, hear the word of the Lord. This sermon right now is God's, Jesus's pursuit of you. The hound of heaven is pursuing you. How will you respond? Will you confess and repent of your sin and confess him as Lord? Here's the other question we need to be aware of from this text How low does Jesus have to take you before that happens? How low does Jesus have to take you before you confess him as Lord? Will you humble yourself before him? And as Christian believers, brothers and sisters, if we've made that decision to follow Christ, here's our application. Are you coming... Two applications for us. The first one is this. Are you coming against Jesus by how you treat or speak against his church? How you speak against your brothers and sisters in Christ? The gossip you use about them. The criticism... That you launch at them. The negativity, the cynicism. Is that you? It's against the Lord, and He isn't pleased. Will you repent of that? Here's the second application for us out of these first nine verses.
1: It builds our faith, doesn't it?
0: These nine verses. Reflect on where you were when Jesus' pursuit met you. Reflect. Spend time this week just reflecting. What was your heart like? How deep was your sin? How far did the brokenness go when the hound of heaven met you. For me, I remember it so clearly. February 2004, I was in a bedroom. I was staying at a friend's home. I was staying in London, Ontario. During a practice teaching placement, I was teaching grade one in the inner city. Love those kids. Practice teaching placement. And life on the outside, if you were to look at me, seemed really successful. Top of the class, yep. Leadership award and teacher, yep. Athlete, yep. Personal trainer, yep. Looking like he had it all together, just like Saul. Had it all together. But inside, absolutely falling apart in fear, in darkness, in hopelessness, seeking identity in performance in the things of this world, going down and almost lost everything, literally almost everything.
1: And Jesus, Jesus brought me low and prostrated on that floor in that bedroom. And I cried out to him and I said, uh, I don't know if there's anything you can use my life for anymore. I don't know. I have nothing left and you have to put me back together but I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you're the Lord and Savior and my life is yours to do as you please please forgive me I have nothing left Lord but it's yours in that moment loved ones Tears of joy just poured. And tears of brokenness at the love of Christ. Just, it was overwhelming. And in this past year, I was able to, we visited London. We're both originally from there, my wife and I. And I was able to take my boys into that very room. To that very place on the floor and we knelt down and we prayed we thank God for his mercy and grace his pursuing grace I said guys none of you would have been here because Natalie wouldn't have married me like that (laughs) I I said uh, she wouldn't have even come 20 yards from me I am Jesus. Thank God for the pursuing grace of the gospel. No
0: heart is too far gone. Where were were you? Where were you? Remembering rightly fuels our witness. It fuels our witness and our longing for others to come to know the Savior. We must trust Jesus in our witness for his unstoppable pursuit. And with this, We must trust Jesus in our witness, final point, for his unimaginable provision. For his unimaginable provision. The provision of grace. There's the pursuit of grace, and then the provision of grace. The provision of grace is a transformed life. Will you trust in the grace of Jesus? Let's go back to the text, verses 10 to 12. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. See, Ananias, he is a Christian in Damascus and actually one of the leaders of the church in Damascus. Isn't it interesting? This is one of the men, one of the major men that Saul was hunting, coming to kill Ananias. And Jesus, the Lord, appears to Ananias and he says, go to Straight Street. Now, actually, if you go to Damascus, you can still walk down Straight Street. Here's a picture of it. That's a big Roman arch. It's one of the big symbols on it. And it's the main east to west street in all of Damascus. There it is right there. It looks pretty straight. Straight Street. Works. That's a good name. And he says, go to Judas's house and lay hands on Saul. Can you imagine Ananias? Go to Judas' house and lay on Saul so he can regain his sight. Now, don't forget, Ananias doesn't know what's happened to Saul. Don't we just love it when God says, go and do this, or commands us to do this, and we're like, okay, can you give me all the details first so I can walk into it? Why would you need eyes of faith at that point? He doesn't tell Ananias what's happened to Saul. He just says, I want you to go and meet Saul. And the name Saul sends fear down his spine. (laughs) And he says, by the way, Ananias, you can't get out of it because Saul knows you're coming because I've shown him in a vision. (laughs) You can't get out of it. You notice the text? I've already told him you're coming. (laughs) Sovereignty, huh? Sovereignty. Look at Ananias' response, 13 to 14. But Ananias answered, "Uh, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. (laughs) I love that I've heard from many about him how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name how does Ananias respond fear Ananias is like uh Lord you mean you want me to go see the very guy that's been hunting me down Jesus, uh, do you remember this guy's reputation and how much evil, the evil things that he's done in the past to your people in Jerusalem? And now he's here to do it to us with authority, by the way, from the high priest. So it's legal. Have you ever been a friend? (laughs) Ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. Uh, Lord, you know about this guy, right? You know about him? Hey, have you ever been afraid to witness to someone? You're in good company. Just don't let it have the last word. (laughs) From this, we see the unimaginable provision of grace for the life Jesus is calling to himself. He gives by grace. Watch this. Unimaginable provision. Here we go. You'll see it. Four things. He gives a new purpose. A new purpose. Look at 15 to 16. Oh yeah, Ananias. You think he's, he's still identified by all the evils he did, watch this. But the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice, notice this. Jesus says, Saul is a chosen instrument. That means he is selected by God for a purpose before the foundation of the world. And notice this, that was regardless regardless of all the evil of Saul's past. He's my chosen instrument. Some of you are refusing to walk into the opportunities God gives you because you're so wrapped up in living in the past and you're not remembering the new purpose that Jesus has given you. You think you've disqualified yourself, not when it comes to the grace of God. He gives Saul a new purpose, despite what's happened in the past. The hater, the persecutor was now the very instrument to carry, verse 15, Christ's name. That means to preach Jesus's name, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, kings and Jews, which we will see that he did amidst much suffering, but seeing Jesus receive much glory. And maybe you're going through a season of suffering right now. Maybe that's you. I want you to notice the text and be encouraged by this. That may be hard. That may be hard. But suffering is part of the Christian life. He must must suffer for my sake, for the name of Christ. But Jesus will care for us. This is awesome. And this is is the man who under the inspiration of the Spirit went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. This guy. That's awesome. See, you'll see it on the screen. Write it down. Jesus transformed Saul's purpose from persecution to proclamation. (laughs) That's awesome. Saul's purpose before was one MO. I'm coming to destroy the church. Now Jesus is like, oh yeah? How about this purpose? Now you're gonna proclaim the very one you were persecuting. Boom. I am Jesus. See, here's what we have to see from this beautiful encounter. You'll put it on the screen right here. Jesus doesn't save you because you're worthy. He saves you because he's gracious. Jesus doesn't save you because you're worthy of it. Saul, in all his evils, was not worthy of that, was he? You and I, in all our evils, we're not worthy of salvation, are we? but he saves us because he's gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. And believers, brothers and sisters, maybe you're still living and dwelling on the evils of your past and you're fearful to step into the new purpose Christ has given you to declare his name. And the devil chirps. Doesn't the devil love to chirp? He's been chirping. He chirps to me for so much, so much. I remember from where the Lord brought me from and how when he called me, From John 21, he says, do you love me? You're going to feed my sheep. I had no idea what was in store. We had no idea, babe. We had no idea. And man, the devil, you think you have any credibility? You think anyone will listen to you? You think you can lead anyone? Look at your past life. You are a mess. You have like zilch credibility. You think God is going to use you for his glory? You think he can redeem that? You're a mess. And you know what? Because of our new purpose in Christ, when the pursuing and providing grace of Christ comes into our lives through repentance and faith, you look at him and say, yeah, devil, yeah, devil, I'm a mess. But isn't it amazing what grace does? In your face, devil. Isn't it amazing what grace does? You see it on the screen. Your past cannot derail God's purpose. Your past cannot derail God's purpose. He can redeem the years the locusts have eaten. Your past cannot derail God's purpose. Next one, next one. So he gives us a new purpose, but look at the unimaginable provision of grace. He gives us a new family, a new family. Look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, no, what was this like? I would love to be a fly on the wall in this room. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Ananias comes to the house, he sees Saul, he lays hands on him, and the first thing he says, the first thing Saul hears from a Christian is not rejection, it's not bitterness, it's not unforgiveness. It's not, okay, now's my chance to really give him a piece of my mind about what he's been doing and my friends, my family. It's not that. What's the first thing he hears out of a Christian's mouth? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The term there, brother, means a sibling. A sibling in God's family. One who has been adopted by God Not the black sheep of the family. There's no black sheep in God's family. But it's full of affection. Full of affection. No longer is it enemy Saul. No longer is it hater Saul. But brother Saul. By the saving grace of Jesus, adopted by God into the family of God, no longer separated from God, but his very child, forgiven, justified, declared righteous, eternally secure, loved unconditionally, and has full inheritance rights of the Father and eternal life. Look at the unimaginable provision of grace right there. What that loaded term, brother Saul, means. And also, did you notice the other example of gospel power and grace provision in this text? Verse 17, Ananias' forgiveness, his ability to forgive Saul and not hold a grudge. You think it's natural or you think you can white knuckle this type of love and affection for another when towards a person who was literally coming, marching 160 miles to kill you? Look at the providing grace of God. That brings us to an application for this. Who do you need to extend that to today? The forgiveness, that affection, and stop holding bitterness and unforgiveness towards them. Your brother or sister in Christ. Look around you. Look around this room right now. This is a snapshot of your family. This is your family. Family is to live this way through the gospel. We don't cancel each other out. We don't gossip about each other. We don't bail out when things aren't convenient anymore. We don't believe the worst about one another. We don't go around snitching. Oh, what's that like? And what do you do there? What do you do? not what family does. Brother Saul, extend forgiveness. Here's your family. Who do you need to give that to today? Extend it to. Unimaginable provision, new purpose, new family. Here's, Here's what else this means. New power. Grace just keeps going on. Grace upon grace. New power. So Ananias departed and entered the house 17 and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled, look at this, filled with the Holy Spirit, 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. See, Ananias lays his hands on Saul. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with God Himself, the guarantee of His salvation, who is given us to empower us, to empower Saul right here for Christ's service. Through what? How does the Holy Spirit empower us? Intimacy with God, power from God, comfort of God, peace with God, joy of God, hope of God, with the illumination from God to understand his word, to know the truth that sets people free. God brings Saul out of the darkness and into the light. The scales get peeled. There's the sign. The scales come off. You know what that means when something like scales fell? Actually, the term in the Greek actually means to husk something away. Husking something away, like fish scales coming off the eye. And physical sight is restored. It's the picture, the physical picture of the spiritual sight Saul is given for the very first time to know and declare the truth of God. That no training in any rabbinical school could give him this, only the grace of Jesus. He was blind in his sin, but now he sees unimaginable provision of grace to know the truth, to expose the lies, to know light from darkness. Oh, it's all grace. New power. Lastly is this, new identity. New identity. Oh, she keeps saying, just, just, just let the grace of God wash over you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this is true for you. And if you're not a follower of Christ, this can be true for you by the end of today. Today, despite what's gone on, Look at look at look at 1819. Hang with me. Here we go. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Notice the first thing Saul does after his salvation. Did you catch it in the text? What's the first thing Saul does? He gets baptized even before his next meal. He's that passionate to obey Jesus. I'm forsaking an empty stomach to get baptized. That's amazing. Have you been baptized yet? Why are you waiting? If you're saved in Jesus Christ, why are you waiting? It's just not there. You don't see it anywhere in the Bible. To wait. Why are you waiting? Loved ones, next baptism service coming up by God's grace. Why do you wait? Here's Saul. He steps up, he gets baptized, taking that step of obedience. The word baptized there means to immerse, submerge in water. We see it all throughout the New Testament as a follower of Christ. Notice again the order it's after Saul's salvation. It's not before he's saved, it's not when Saul was a baby, he was baptized as an infant. It's after salvation, Saul is baptized as we saw through thousands of other believers as we've gone through the book of Acts. And the baptism is the picture of Saul's new life or identity in Jesus. See, baptism, loved ones, is the public declaration of one's faith and the declaration of one's inclusion into the church, the family of God. It is the confirmation of one's new identity given to them by Christ, made totally new. And Saul and all who confess Jesus today are given a new nature nature. The nature of Jesus. See, God just doesn't, when you're saved, when you repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord, God just doesn't buff up your old nature. Make it a little shinier because you got all these dings and dents and bruises. No, no, no. He doesn't just give it a buff-up job. He makes you totally new. Totally new. No longer, oh, I love this. Let the grace of God wash over you right now. No longer are you who this world says you are. No longer are you who your sin says you are. No longer are you who the devil says you are. No longer are you who your performance says you are. You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. And he says you're a new creation with a new purpose, with a new family, with new power, and a whole new identity. Behold the unimaginable provision of grace. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you've got to be in Christ. You're going to be saved in Christ. He is a new creation, made new. The old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. All those evils passed away. And the new has come. The new has come. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. The provision of grace is a transformed life. Hope Ottawa, will you trust in the grace of Jesus? His unstoppable pursuit and his unimaginable provision. And again, friends, if you are not in the family of God, you have never confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior Loved one, will you respond to Christ's pursuit of you like Saul did right here? Humbling yourself and stop trusting in your good works to save you, or stop making excuses as to why you won't believe when you hear the gospel preached. Stop making excuses. The hound of heaven is coming. Stop. And stop living in hostility towards Jesus and his church and repent of sin and believing that he is the son of God, lived a perfect life, paid the penalty for your sin and mine, which ultimately leads us to hell and separation from God. And he died and rose again, as we saw experienced right here, the resurrected Christ. He rose again three days later, defeating sin and death and offers forgiveness and eternal life with him. Will you reject him or receive him? Those are your only two options. Reject or receive. There's no middle ground. And brothers and sisters, has the amazing grace of Jesus led you to the praise of Jesus? Are you regularly thinking, hey, Jess, can you put the screen back up, the four points, subpoints there? Are you regularly thinking of the unimaginable provision you've been given? There's no room for grumbling when you do. There's no room for complaining. No room for criticizing when you do. Are you regularly praising Jesus. Was. When's the last time you just spent time praising Jesus for the unimaginable provision of grace he's extended to you, even though you don't deserve any of it? Just like Saul. Trusting in Jesus' grace. Here's the second application. You see it on the screen. Trusting in Jesus' grace means declaring Jesus' grace. Do you want to see others around you, loved ones, coworkers, kids, family, classmates, team members, experience this same provision of grace? Do you have compassion on those around you who are longing for this but don't know the Savior? Who has Jesus in his sovereignty put around you to declare this to? And will you be strong and courageous in your witness, knowing that no one can outrun the grace of Jesus? Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus, I thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, I pray you would be refreshing us all over this room. I pray for those who don't yet know you that they would see the beauty of who you are and say, Yes, Lord, I'm blind, but I want to see. And would repent and confess you, so even tonight, and all those evils, all the stuff gone. A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All across this room, Lord, would you have mercy? Would you open eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond? And and those of us who've made that decision, would we be refreshed in that, Lord, afresh today? Where have we been neglecting to praise you for that? Where have we been forsaking your grace and thinking we deserve it, thinking our works have earned us it? No. Lord, bring us low, not walking in pride. Bring us to humility, and Jesus be exalted. In your name we pray. Amen. Church, will you stand and respond with us?